Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come together and learn your word and make application to our lives and the lives of our families. Help us to be diligent in this and not complacent. And uh, help us to be focused on what you have called us to do. To not only uh, live personal lives of gratitude, but to demonstrate that by fruitful living in our lives and in our families and in future generations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is important for us and for all of us to understand that what we are doing as parents is important. In fact, there is really nothing that's any more important than that. Everything else you do should be in service of that. Uh, but that importance can certainly get lost in the daily grind of child rearing. You are someone's ancestor, uh, or you will be. And as such, each of us leaves something to our children and to our children's children. You should think of your family like a, a river. There's a river behind you, and people put things into that river that have, have flowed downstream to you. And then you are putting things into that river that will continue to flow downstream to future generations. The question is not if, but what you're putting into that stream. Among other things, our children inherit the consequences of our choices. The decisions that we make today will affect countless generations, in fact, hundreds of souls, hundreds of years from now. And though you'll only have the opportunity to impact one or two generations directly, you will impact all of those generations indirectly. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. This verse, of course, assumes that the inheritance is a blessed one. Though such an inheritance should include wealth, the Bible tells us that there is something far more precious than monetary value. Child rearing, then, is eternally significant because your children are immortals. They will exist and live as long as God does. And thus what you do with your children is one of the most lasting endeavors that you will have. This far outweighs anything that you do in regard to business or how large your bank account is. 10,000 years from now, no one will care whether you were the wealthiest man in the world. But they will care about your descendants. Your descendants will still exist. And this is why raising children is such an honorable and a beautiful endeavor. And again, I, I know it's easy to, to lose that on a Tuesday afternoon in the dirty, among all the dirty clothes and the dirty dishes and the crying babies to lose sight of that. But it's really necessary that we step back and get this big picture because that's what gonna, what's going to sustain you sometimes on that hard day when you feel overwhelmed with all that's going on. Child rearing is limited in duration. From one perspective, 20 years is a long time. So God doesn't just hand you a child and say, here, you have a week to accomplish this. You've got 
20 years to work at this, and you make mistakes, and you make corrections, and, and you have a, a fair amount of time. That's one perspective. But from another perspective, uh, your time is short. 20 years in light of eternity. But your opportunity to teach and shape your children uh, is, is the time, that's the time God's given you. Now, it's important that we have, then, as we prepare to begin to talk about the actual applications, the how-tos of child-rearing, that, again, we're still dealing with some fundamental perspectives. And it's important that we have a generational mindset. Now, we give some examples from Scripture here of, of how we see this taught. Uh, Abraham, for example, in Genesis 17, 5 through 7, the covenant is made with Abraham, but it's also made with his offspring and those who would come after him. So God is clearly working to not only in person Abraham, the man, the individual, but he has in view when he makes covenant with him future generations. In Genesis 18, Abraham is chosen. Why? God tells him, in order that you may command your household and your children after you to keep the way of the Lord. So that's, God chose this individual, but he chose him with a goal in mind that he would then perpetuate that by way of his children. Genesis 22:18, through one of his descendants, we're told, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Ultimately, Jesus Christ. And so, 2,000 years before Jesus comes, God is already at work preparing through Abraham. And remember, Abraham is our father as well, and we are children of Abraham. And therefore, these promises, these things he's called to, we're called to. The generation of the Exodus and following, the dedication of the of the firstborn was symbolic of dedicating all of one's children to the Lord, Exodus 13. In the Passover, for example, fathers were to gather their whole family together and explain the Passover to their children, uh, including the, the, the youngest of, of children. All the children were brought in together. In fact, if uh, the youngest child would typically ask, what does this mean? And if the youngest child was too young to ask, wasn't, wasn't talking yet, then somebody else would be appointed to ask the question on their behalf, what does this mean? And this was rehearsed year after year after year to inculcate in the children their understanding of redemption. The sins of the fathers, were told, are visited to three and four generations, and the blessings of the covenant to a thousand generations. So clearly, again, the implications of how we live, how we raise our children, has bearing on many generations. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, we'll look at a little closer uh, later, but these things, we're told, shall be on your heart, and you shall then diligently teach them to your children. And then Deuteronomy 30 says, and I will circumcise their hearts, referring to children. Joshua 24:14. you remember the famous statement Joshua made? He said, you know, some of you want to go worship these other gods? Go for it. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Judges 2.10, we read this tragic statement. There arose a generation that did not know the Lord. And so it's possible to lose what we have. It's, impos- it's possible to lose the, uh, 
the influence of the gospel. High priest Eli's sons were told in 1 Samuel 2.12, didn't know the Lord. In the Psalms we read, Psalm 78, 4-8, telling our children the story of our people so that they can learn from, uh, learn from our father's failures. Uh, we can, so as we teach about the various things that happened in the Bible, uh, some of those were successes, but a lot of them were failures. Part of what we're teaching them is so that they won't repeat those things, so that they'll learn from those uh, mistakes of their forefathers. Um, we don't want that to ever happen again. Psalm 102, 25 through 28, The children of your servants shall dwell secure, their offspring shall be established before you. That's the goal, multiple generations. Psalm 103, 15-18, God's promise is to be faithful to his promise throughout the generations. So that we must, we must diligently teach during our brief lives so that his love through the generations would be remembered by our children. I think one of the things I want to emphasize is, and I think you know this, is this is not... A footnote in the Bible. This is not some minor thing that's emphasized, but rather it is repeated over and over and over and over. It is a theme of the Bible. From Genesis on, God's always had the family in view, always had our children and children's children in view. In the New Testament, in Acts 2, Remember on the day of Pentecost, as Peter is preaching, he, he reminds those who've asked, what must we do to be saved? He says, the promise is to you and to your children. That's actually language that God used with Abraham. And so Peter is invoking that again on, the, on Pentecost, the inauguration of the church. And in Ephesians 6, 1-4, Paul applies Old Covenant and his promises to Gentile children as well. One generation is responsible to pass along the faith to the next. I like to call it primary evangelism. It's the main place we do evangelism is with our own children. That's who God gave us. He gave us the most control, the most influence, uh, the most amount of time. We have all the things we need. The Bible, we have the church, we have prayer, we have education. We have all those things coming together and God uses those. And so, as, as Paul told Timothy, from the time you're a nursing baby, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise into salvation. So, Timothy's mother and grandmother were clearly faithful in delivering that to him. This is what Psalm 78, 4-8 so emphasizes. Let me read that. We will not hide them, that is, the stories of what God has done from their children, telling to the generation to come, the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they, might, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. 
But unfortunately, some have neglected this, and all it takes is one unfaithful generation, and the country will then have to be won back all over again to Jesus, as if it had never been there before. Psalm 127, 3, uh, 3 through 5, talks about well-rewarded and being well-armed in regard to having godly children. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but speak with their enemies in the gate. And so I want to speak in terms of the biblical ideal of the family. What, what should it look like? What's supposed to be going on in this process of raising our children to the glory of God? The Greek word paideia meant total enculturation. It's a word for education or teaching, training. But the idea is a complete enculturation. We're in, we, we are inculcating a culture to our children. And the culture includes everything. Images, ideas, music, arts, uh, all kinds of traditions and things that we do. Everything that comes together to form our culture. Pedagogos was an educated Greek slave who would be tasked to bring children up to be thoroughly Greek. They would study with them and teach them. Basically, these were tutors or nannies that would be brought in, and the goal was to make sure the children were completely uh, engulfed in the Greek culture. They were Hellenized, and they needed to know exactly how to conduct themselves in the Greek culture, the proper manners, and how to, to uh, conduct yourself in society, and so forth. In Ephesians 6.4, we read that we, fathers, are to bring our children up in the training, there's that word, uh, paideia, uh, and training and the admonition of the Lord. Paul is telling these Greeks to raise their children not in the paideia of Greece, but in the paideia of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a different culture. It's not the Greek culture, it's a Christian culture. Remember, they have already been told not to think like the Gentiles, as we've been studying in Ephesians. Hence, they need to know how to look at everything and think about everything like a faithful Christian does. And this instruction uh, has been entrusted to fathers and mothers. The parents, not the church or the state, uh, are, the primary, are primarily responsible for the children's education. So I want to read a passage we've read before in this study, and we will probably read it again because it is one of the central passages, and I want to break it down just a little bit this morning, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we've established who the Lord is, who the boss is, who the, who the king is, who's in charge. You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house 
and on your gates. And so we see from the beginning that this instruction is based on love. These things shall be in your heart. You must love the Lord and His work. If you don't, your children won't. And it'll show. And out of this love, then you instruct your children. Many countries are in population decline. And this does not show God's blessing on those nations. Fruitfulness is one of the signs of God's blessings. And so we are familiar, for example, with Psalm 128. A man who fears the Lord and is blessed in his family. His wife is like a fruitful vine which bears delicious fruit. His children are all around the table like little olive plants in the vineyard. Or in the, I don't guess it's a vineyard, in the orchard. Um, the fear of the Lord, we're told, brings sweet blessings. And one of those blessings is in seeing grandchildren. And so, to summarize, the purpose of the family is it's an expanding communion that displays the glory of the triune God by filling the entire earth with immortal image, image bearers that reflect the love of the Trinity and the relationship between Christ and His church. So back to Deuteronomy 6, there's first, notice there is formal training, formal instruction, teach them diligently. That implies a plan. That implies regularity. We'll be talking about that and how that looks in the family. It's a Hebrew word for sharpening things, for sharpening tools or weapons. This is the idea of repetition, going back to ideas, rehearsing them, and engaging our children with these ideas so that they can give them back to us. This is part of what we're doing. It's the formal part, but there's also informal instruction. When you walk by the way, etc. When you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, all the time, wherever you are, this is you're 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 always teaching. You're always instructing. In fact, that's an inescapable concept. So you being here today with your children, you're teaching them something. And if you're here every week doing that, you're teaching them this is what's important every week. That's not debatable. This is what we do. We assemble with God's people. We worship God. We learn God's Word. That's what we do. We don't debate that on Saturday night or Sunday morning. If you choose not to be here for illegitimate reasons, in other words, if you're not sick uh, or some legitimate reason to not be here, you're also teaching your children. Everybody who's at home in bed today, because they're tired, said, my weariness is more important than worship. Because I'm more important than worship. And you're teaching your children that. And every time you make a decision, you're teaching your children. It's, a, it's just simply inescapable. And by the way, that will spill over into how you, as husband and wife, interact with each other. It's not just what you tell your children about how to treat their brother and sister. It's what they see you doing that's also teaching them about how to treat one another. And so... You're teaching all the time, whether you know it or not, whether you think about it or not, and I'm urging you to think about it. The child is with their father or mother as they go about life, and they watch their parents and see how they act, and they seize opportunities, hopefully, to positively instruct their children. This is the power of example. 
Now, I want to talk about some of the goals of discipline and begin, begin with some wrong ideas that sometimes we have. And we're going to be moving into some specifics to talk more about discipline. But it's important right off the bat for me to emphasize, we tend to think, hear the word discipline, we think of things like spankings or go to your room or some kind of punishment. Uh, but discipline is mostly about instruction. It's mostly about forming uh, our children, telling them what they need to know, showing them how to do it, being an example to them of how to do it. Do it. And then we come along, and when, when they don't do it just right, we correct them. We make adjustments. We keep them on track. And then, only in the more extreme cases, when there's open rebelling against those standards, does this corrective discipline take, take on other forms. And so that's important. So let me just say, when we think about corrective discipline, first of all, it's really not punishment, biblically. There are three primary spheres of authority, the family, the church, and the state. And the family and the church exercise restorative discipline. Remember, the goal is what? Communion. Loving communion. And when sin comes in, the loving communion has been broken. There's no more communion. Sin has disrupted it. And our goal is to restore the communion. That is always the goal. That's true in the church. That's true in the family. And so fathers discipline their children to turn away from evil and towards the Lord. Churches exercise discipline for many reasons, but one of them, we're told, is to win their brothers. That's the goal. The state is the only one of the three spheres that punishes. It is given the sword to execute wrath on evildoers. The incalcitrant, for those who will not be restored to family and church, ultimately there is punishment. Neither is our discipline of our children atonement. This is really crucial to understand. Our children are not disciplined to take away their sins. This is perhaps what they will assume, but we must correct this false idea because it runs contrary to the gospel. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, and neither can the rod of reproof. Only the blood of Jesus. He atones for the sins of our children. So in other words, they can't make up for their sins. They can't, oh, I did this, and now I'm going to do something to make up for it or pay for it. It is not propitiation. Propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. You've made me mad. I'm your father, and now you're going to pay, and I'm going to take that out on you. Some parents spank their children as a way of venting their anger at their disobedience. But here again, this is wrong. Jesus is the only propitiation for sin. Further venting our anger at our children will not teach them how teach them to know God, who is kind and patient when disciplining his children. In disciplining our children, we're not sacrificing them, but rather building building them up to be more Christ like, which is why we must make sure that we discipline with dignity. This isn't about humiliation. And again, these are all things that parents uh, sometimes are guilty of. So, it, 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 if we're supposed to be dealing with sin, 
we're dealing with their sin, we shouldn't be adding our sin to their sin. It's imperative that we not sin when we're correcting them for their sin. That means we have to keep the objectives in mind. We have to know what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. And sometimes we have to talk to ourselves and say, settle down. You're out of control. That's a sin. We'll be talking about that more in the sermon today. Neither is discipline's behavioral conditioning. Some say that training children is like training dogs or mules. But our training must go deeper than the externals. We aim at attitudes and hearts. We must shape and inform the conscience. We do not merely want them to obey the standard. We want them to love the standard. That is discipleship. And our discipline can never be unloving or cruel. Many modern writers say that using the rod of reproof is unloving and cruel. It's true that some parents are unloving and cruel in their discipline. And we condemn that every single time and every single place. Discipline is restorative and it should first be private and measured and grounded in the gospel. Any discipline given that hurts a child or that is not proportional or that is not given in order to impart some blessing to the child or that is not uh, consistent could very well fall into this category. However, biblical discipline is not anything like this. The pattern set for us, uh, for us, for discipline, is found in Matthew 18, where we someone's offended and we go to them and we confront them with it and we deal with it. But even there, the goal is to restore. It's always to restore. And so, the, uh, first, the admonitions again are private, and only later. If there's no repentance, might they become public? When we see the goals of discipline, we understand what, what the Bible means when it says, it says, Spare, he who spares his rod hates his child, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And so the rod of discipline, a spanking, if you will, administered with love and with all these goals in mind to restore is a good thing, and it's not cruel, and it's not unloving. In fact, the Bible says it's quite the opposite. So what are the biblical goals of discipline? First, to convey love. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Discipline is also to affirm sonship, or that the fact that you're my child and I'm your parent. Hebrews 12, 4-8 You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges, or spanks, every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. And so the discipline itself is a means of affirming that I care for you. If I didn't care for you, I'd let you do whatever you want to do. Just stay out of my hair. 
I don't discipline other people's children. I discipline my children, my son, my daughter. These are mine. This is my responsibility. I love them, and I am affirming that when I exercise discipline. Again, often said to my children, I picked this up from somebody somewhere, I don't remember who or when, but my kids learned to do it, and they'd be at Walmart and we'd see somebody really acting out and misbehaving or uh, dressed in inappropriate ways, and one of the kids would say, their daddy doesn't love them, or their mama doesn't love them. And that was, they were learning that to allow that kind of behavior or that kind of dress was actually an example of not being loved and not being treated as a son or daughter. Another goal of discipline is to impart wisdom and understanding. It's not just about behavior. It's not just about stay out of my hair, stop annoying me, I told you to shut up and, and get out of here. It's not about me. It is about imparting wisdom and understanding. Proverbs 10:13. Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. And we may say more about this later, but I think it's very powerful here what this is saying is that the body and the soul are connected. The body and the heart, the heart of the person. Foolishness is where? In the heart. How do you get it out of the heart? The rod of discipline. We want to change your heart, not just your outward behavior. It promote, we want to promote holiness in discipline. Hebrews 12.10, For they indeed for a few days chastened us and seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. We want to see, do you want your children to be like all the children of the world? Do you want them to be like the children in our culture now? Or do you want them to be separate, holy, Christ-like? then you're going to need to discipline them. You're going to need, they're going to need to know where the boundaries are and what they can and can't do. And, and you're going to instruct them as to why they can and can't do that as they are old enough to understand. Why? Because you love them and you want them to be happy and live with God forever. And He's holy. And if you're going to be in His presence, you've got to be holy. We want to deliver them from death, both spiritual and physical. Proverbs 23, 14, you shall beat them with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. I remember a number of years ago, some of you may remember Joe Clark, who was a principal in Philadelphia at a public school that was a mess. And I remember seeing him on uh, Crossfire, a television show, debate show, and one of the liberal commentators asked Joe... Uh, that you, you put 50 boys out of the school. These were drug dealers and thugs, and you just kicked them out. And uh, Tom Braden said, uh, so what's going to happen to those 50 boys? And he said, I guess they're going to die and go to hell. But they're not coming back to my school. Now, I don't think that was being cold-hearted. I think they were just telling it like it is. Somebody at home didn't love those boys enough to save their souls. But what we're not going to do is let that group take everybody else down. 
a goal, one of the goals of discipline is training for lasting holiness. Hebrews 12:11. Now all chastening or discipline seems not to be joyful in the moment, but painful. But in the end, no pun intended, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Short-term tears, long-term happiness. Long-term holiness. And so, how do we discipline? We should discipline as God does. He is the perfect Father, and He parents perfectly. We make mistakes, but He never does. And so we should imitate our Father. Before you discipline, there should be parental love. And accept it. You have to lay the groundwork. If your children know you love them, and they're not just a nuisance, and they're not just an appendage at the house, they're not just in the way, they're not just another mouth to feed, but these are the apples of your eye. When they know that, they will receive your discipline. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just to the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. If your child thinks he's being disciplined because it makes you feel better, the discipline will never have its intended effects, rather the opposite. If your child knows he's cherished by mother and father, then when he is out of fellowship with them, he'll want to be restored as quickly as possible. And if he knows his parents discipline out of obedience to God, and not because they enjoy giving spankings, then he will really... He'll readily uh, receive correction. And so you should make, as God does, clear statements of expectations. God is wonderful in always telling us what he expects of us. He did this in the garden and again when making a covenant at Sinai. As parents, our rules and exceptions should be clear and unambiguous. They should also be constant and not changing with our moods. Some of the elements of discipline, temporary pain, and some artificial consequences. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we're young, we need to learn that our choices have consequences. And if we don't learn to choose wisdom and reflect folly instead when we're young, then the consequences are really significant and we'll be in trouble. So the rod of reproof gives children the artificial consequences for their actions. Why? With the hope that they will learn and turn away from evil before the consequences are far more serious. Before the consequences will kill them. And then consistency. Do not, the Bible says, provoke your children to wrath. Do not exasperate your children. The expectations that we spoke of earlier are important to enforce every single day. And it is exasperating to have different standards every day. When a child is disciplined for being messy one day, but not the next, they have to wonder, do my parents really mean it? What are some of the reasons for our inconsistency? Sometimes too many rules. 
We get all, you know, hey, went to a child training class and we have a new list of 25 rules in our house. And so pretty soon we're only following eight of them consistently. Lack of endurance, weariness, laziness, lots of reasons that we are not consistent. But it's also important in discipline that there's proportion. Some sins are worse. Lying, premeditation, rebellious intent, or high-handedness, high-handed rebellion, willful rebellion. Those call for one level of discipline. Ignorance and forgetfulness are less culpable or less serious, still require discipline. And let us not forget the gospel in discipline, especially in the early years when children are still learning to obey. It is possible to discipline a child many, many, many times in one day. When we do so, we're teaching them every time how to deal with our sin. It's important. Uh, it's an, it's an, an important way to either reinforce the true gospel or a false one. When we discipline our children, it's helpful to have them have the same process, to have something consistent, you know, whether it's the administration of a spanking. If you're chasing your children around the house with a wooden spoon, you're not, you're not doing this right. The first part is you shouldn't be chasing your children. You're the boss. We'll, we'll get into more of this later. But it, it shouldn't be all over the map. You need to think about this. What's good? What's wise? What's profitable? What accomplishes the thing I'm trying to accomplish for my children? So how about this? This is just a suggestion. Begin with confession. What did you do? Sometimes what they, think, what they think they did and what you think they did are not exactly the same. It's important they understand what it is they're being disciplined for. One of the most basic human life skills that we have to learn is that we have to take full responsibility for our sins. And our tendency is to want to make excuses and to minimize our guilt. Proverbs 28.13 tells us that bad things happen to those who hide their sins. We want to not only model confession of sin, but we want our children to know the mercy that comes to those who confess. Asking this question gives our children an opportunity to confess their sins instead of us leading with an accusation. Sometimes they'll still hide, and we're going to need to deal with that if they do. You need a clear standard. What did, what does, what did God want you to do in this situation as you talk to your children? You know, what did you do? What did God want you to do? Here we are reinforcing God's law. We're not just speaking abstractly. We're bringing God into this. We don't obey God's law as a means of salvation, but it is a way of knowing what things please and glorify God. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29:15. And then the discipline. So we've got confession, we have the standard, what does God want you to do? Sometimes it's good to ask, so what do you think you deserve? What does God want me, the parent, to do? That's another part of the question. I'm asking God, God, what do you want me to do? This is a hard but important question. The child has been disobedient to God's word and needs discipline. The parent giving that discipline is an act of obedience. 
The child needs to know that the parent is giving discipline because God requires loving parents to do that. And loving parents give discipline as a gift to their children. And it's at this time that the child receives the discipline. The point is to sting, not hurt. And after the spanking or whatever, the parent comforts the child until there is restoration. Now, in judgment, we should remember mercy. If you show mercy, make, it, make sure that the rest of the process still happens. You've shown them mercy. Now they need to seek mercy from God. Atonement. What will you do with your sins? Another way of asking this question is, does a spanking take away your sins? And the answer is no, because only God can take away our sins. The spanking does not take away sins. And so then we help that child pray for forgiveness and renewal with help from the parent if the child is young. Restoration. What does God promise? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fellowship is restored. We assure the child of Christ's forgiveness, and they should leave the room full of joy because they're forgiven. And then sometimes restitution. How do we right the wrong? If a toy is broken or stolen, then they need to replace it, perhaps with interest. Who do they need to go to and ask forgiveness of? Have they told lies about someone? Do they need to go and tell the truth and repair that person's reputation and so forth? And so finally, I'll close with this, the fruit of discipline. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from hell. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its promises, its clarity, its vision, its perspective. Help us to adopt all that for ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.